Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Katherine Khalifa. Katie is a partner in Foley's Washington, D.C. office with a practice focus on trademark, copyright, and advertising. We begin our discussion by having Katie reflect on growing up in Silver Spring, Maryland. I have her talk a bit about her interests as well as her family, and you will learn that Katie is Mexican-American and that her family did not immigrate to the U.S., but the U.S. essentially came to her family due to how borders changed. Katie then talks about her decision to attend Wellesley for college and Stanford Law School. Katie also is a homegrown Foley and Lardner partner. Foley and Lardner is the only firm where she has practiced. So I get her to talk about not only what it was that her attracted to Foley when she was in law school and her practice area, but also what has kept her at the firm over the years. After this, I get her to dive in a bit and give her advice on learning how she learned her practice, particularly one that is as broad as trademark, copyright, and advertising. She shares some great insight about the importance of understanding the pressures that the people around you, the people that you're working with, whether they be partners or clients, are under as a key to being a successful attorney. Next, I get Kitty to reflect a bit on what it's like being a woman of color, particularly a woman of color partner in a large law firm. She discusses how that experience has impacted her, how she's navigated it, and she really illustrates tremendous self-awareness as she discusses how some of her cultural differences impacted her journey. Finally, we end the conversation with Katie giving some great advice. In particular, she gives wonderful insight on how and why introverts can thrive in a large law firm and on the importance of your client's best interests being your guiding principle. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Katie Khalifa. Katie, welcome to the show. We're just going to jump right in and I'm going to have you give your professional introduction. Okay. Hi, my name is Katie Khalifa. I'm a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Foley and Lardner, and my practice focuses on trademark counseling, prosecution, and enforcement. So we're going to do what I do every show, which is have the attorney say all this neat stuff about their practice and then not talk about it for at least the next 10 to 15 minutes. Because the you know one of the main points of this podcast is to understand how it is and why it is that you're able to introduce yourself like that now. So we have to start somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? So where I'm from, Chicana, so I'm Mexican-American. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in Silver Spring, Maryland. All right. And I want like a snapshot of, I don't know if I found you in elementary school or middle school. What were you into? What was life like? Tell me more. Let's see. In elementary and middle school, my big passions are the same as they are today, actually. I love reading, writing, and listening to music. So I was really into, in elementary school would have been the 80s. I was really into like heavy metal and hip hop. And as I got into middle school, I started getting into the more like punk rock scene. It was a really big in the DC area in the, in the early 90s. And I loved dogs. 
I had two growing up, one with a Rottweiler, one with a Beagle mix. Still love dogs. And I, you know, I harass all my neighbors with puppies and, and stop them as they're walking. I love that. And I love that you shared your interest with music. And so for any longtime listeners of the show, part of the show is you learning way too much about me. And so there's a lot of things that the attorneys will say, and I have to be like, me too. And so a couple things. One, didn't expect the heavy metal. I just didn't expect you to say that. But then you said the punk rock thing. So for me, it was more kind of like late 90s, early 2000s. There are some things I don't talk a lot about anymore. That just makes me laugh. But also, you mentioned that you are Mexican-American. Could you tell me more about that as well, particularly your, I don't know anything about your parents and when they came or when your family perhaps came to the U.S. as well as I'm curious if you have any siblings. Yeah, so we never came to the U.S. The U.S. changed its borders and, (laughs) you know, acquired my family. So my family is historically from South Texas. And so when that land transferred from Mexico to the United States, we became Americans instead of Mexicans. And my family has been in that same area for, you know, 500 years or more. We have lots of family cemeteries, roads that are named after family members, those sorts of things. It's We're very much ingrained in that area. My parents both grew up in South Texas. All of my extended family still lives there. My dad went to law school and they came here to the DC area so that he could work in government. And approximately where in South Texas? My geography is not that great, but I'm certain some listeners will be curious as to like towns. Sure. So right on the border, McAllen, Edinburgh, my grandparents lived in Harlingen. You know, if you look at the map of Texas, it's right at the bottom tip. Yep, makes sense. And the diversity director in me just has to pause for a second because I think that's definitely challenging assumptions and biases, right? Because what did I say? I said, when did your family come? And you're like, no, no, no. You know, the U.S. came to us, but I think that's just really important to clarify and for people to understand. (laughs) And also, like you said, going, you know, 500 years back really is something. But and you covered a lot there also with so the bulk of your family's from South Texas, but your family specifically moved to the D.C. area for your father getting a job. Yeah. Okay. And then also I asked, do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have an older brother who's also a lawyer. Okay, so legal is runs in your family. Yeah. Well, and the questions, and we're gonna we're still gonna get there, but for a lot of people, I love walking through their early years to see where that seed was planted of learning about the law or being a lawyer. And so for you, it sounds like it was something that you were just aware of as an option. Yeah. So my dad was a civil rights attorney and my mom was also a, a civil servant. She was a public school teacher. And so that idea of public service was very very strong in our family. And I figured that that was what I was going to do when I grew up, that I would become a lawyer like my dad and eventually get into public policy of some sort, either crafting it or trying to influence it through lobbying or something along those lines. That's what I had in my head. And then when I went to law school, I was a summer associate at Foley my first year. And I realized that not all lawyers have to go be in the courtroom all day because there's other types of law. There's other types of law. You know, and I'm going to stop you there because I want to talk about that. But I also want to discuss where you went to college and where you went to law school. Sure. And even before I get there, so you you mentioned you grew up in Washington, D.C., meaning D.C. proper. Like 
I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland. So I'm sorry, you said, okay, Silver Spring. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. So Silver Spring, Maryland, we've gotten a sense of what you were sort of into extracurriculars, but what was the process for you when you were in high school, figuring out where you were going to go to college and where did you go? Sure. So I applied to the top four universities and the top four liberal arts colleges just because I was like, well, if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to the best one. Let's go to the... (laughs) (laughs) And I visited them and I really just went with my gut instinct about where I felt the most comfortable. I didn't get a good feeling, for example, when I went to Princeton. I just, it didn't feel like the right fit for me. You know, it's obviously an excellent school, but it's not somewhere where I saw myself. We're talking vibes here, Katie. That's yeah. what you're talking. The vibe wasn't right for you. Didn't pass your vibe check. Got it. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. But then when I went to visit Wellesley College, which is where I ultimately went, I was like, immediately I could see myself there. I could picture myself growing and and really developing there. And so that's the one I chose. Yeah. Well, and I, I just think that's interesting because so we have a lot of law students listening, of course, folks from Foley and Lardner listen and a few other lawyers outside the firm. But I do know that I've heard people having their um, like high school, like their kids listening. And I just think it's interesting for people to hear how somebody chose college. And there's all these objective things. And you know, you can look at lists and rankings and that. But there is something to be said for just, is this a place where I feel comfortable? Can I envision myself here? So I'm, I appreciate you sharing that. So you go to Wellesley. What did you major in? I double majored in economics and Spanish. And why? Economics, because Wellesley is really known for that. And my parents also said that they were not going to pay for a college education if I just majored in Spanish. So, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Yeah. As it was, I still had to take out massive loans. But, you know, Spanish I did because I, even though I'm Mexican American, I've never been fluent in Spanish. And I was hoping that it would, that would help me become fluent. And it also helped allow me to study abroad because you had to be in a language program to study abroad in certain countries. So I ended up studying in Spain for my junior year. And I'm assuming that did help you get fluent or closer to it? It did, but I haven't used it since, you know, it's not something that I really use on a regular basis. And as it was, it was more like I could speak academic Spanish and talk about, you know, the surrealist art movement. (laughs) But like, you know, having normal conversations with people was a little bit trickier. Because that's not what I was used to. And I know we'll, we'll talk more about your practice, but you said you're not getting a chance to use it. So you're not, and these last couple episodes, recording them during Hispanic Heritage Month, you know, we're featuring a number of Hispanic lawyers from Foley. And I think one, Jaime Guerrero does use Spanish routinely, but I think it's just interesting for people to hear when people are using foreign languages or, you know, first languages, depending and when they're not. But then also, even if you were using it in the law, you'd need to know like the technical language for things. So like you said, the art history sort of language may not be helpful. Although I'm curious, going back to the double majors in economics and Spanish, was the thought law school? Or at that point, were you more open as to what you would do after college? I was more open. I thought law school was probable, but not definite at that point. And I was still thinking, you know, about going into public policy of some sort. So I was thinking maybe I would get a master's in public policy or get a PhD, maybe in in an area that I wanted to focus on. But then I took the LSATs on a whim. They just offered a practice test at the school. As one does. As one does. (laughs) (laughs) And I got a really good score without doing any studying for it. So I was like, oh, well. Law school looks like it'll probably 
be I'd be able to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was that? Was that your junior or senior year? That would have probably been my early in my senior year that I took the LSAT. So they were giving them on campus. And I took it. Yeah. And you're not the first lawyer on this podcast to say that. I want to say Caleb Burr, he maybe did something like that. He's an employment associate. So it's not unheard of, but it's definitely interesting. And then how did you decide that law school was the next thing for you after you get the LSAT and you're like, let's go ahead and do this? Or what really locked it in? To be perfectly honest, it was the student loans because I had so many from college and there was no job that I could get straight out of college that would allow me to pay them back without living with my parents. So I was like, well, if I go to law school straight from college, I'll be able to defer my loan payments. And so that's what I did. Defer the payments, maybe get more loans, maybe, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I pay for it all by myself with loans. But I think that's such an important thing to raise because that's a part for many of us of being attorneys and to pretend like it's not there or calculus is not, not reality. I definitely had similar view because I I too went straight through. And one, the idea of just getting a real job, whatever that is, was like, what would that be? Particularly with my philosophy and law and society (laughs) major. So yeah, let's go ahead and do this law school thing. I hear you're able to get jobs that pay very well. And that was even then. Now they pay even better. So what was the process for you figuring out where you were going to go to law school? So it was based a lot on on geography, because I didn't have a particular practice area in mind. I was, again, looking at, you know, the sort of top ranked schools. And then I felt like law school was more of a crapshoot than undergrad in terms of like where I could get in. So I had more, quote unquote, safety schools for law school than I did for undergrad. Yeah, casted a wider net. Yeah. And what was funny was I actually didn't get into my safety schools, but I got into the ones that I, you know, that I thought the were, ones that were a reach. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so, it works out. It worked out just it fine. worked out. Where did you end up going? I went to Stanford Law School. And what was that experience like for you? And I get for, you know, it was, it was getting to the point where it was, you know, some time ago, but did you enjoy it? Was it easy? Was it hard? Was there an adjustment? I loved my time at Stanford. I, when I went out, I went for Minority Admit Weekend, which is where they bring the Latino students, Black students, Asian students, and Native American students to campus early to see it and see if this is where they want to go to school. And the friendships that I made during that weekend are still some of my closest friends today. I just immediately clicked with the people I met, and they were fantastic. And I remember being a little bit intimidated when I went because I was straight from college and there were people there who were current professors at Stanford who were going to be in my law school class. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) What did you just say? (laughs) Like one of the people was a professor at Stanford, decided that he wanted to go to law school. And wanted to get his JD. I'm already a professor, but that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. And other people, you know, who... One was a cop. He had been on the LAPD for like 12 years and one was an FBI agent. So I was like, how can I like be in the same room with these people who have so much more life experience than I do? And I remember talking to the cop about that during that weekend. And he was like, well, 
what Stanford looked at us and they saw that what we've already accomplished and they see your potential for what you can accomplish. And we both deserve to be here. And so it was just, you know, very, that's the kind of welcoming and collaborative place it was. Which is wonderful. But also I think I'm so happy you raised that because that feeling of looking around the room and, you know, it's going to vary for everyone. But like you, I think I was 22 when I started law school. And this is for regardless of the school, I think you're they're bringing all sorts of people together because it makes for interesting discussion. But yeah, you look around and there's someone you're like, well, they already got their PhD, probably the professor I'm certain probably had. I think many of us in one way or another have had that feeling of like, everyone in here is so impressive. What do I have? to contribute to this. So just before your podcast is the episode with Laura Ganoza, and she ends her advice to everyone is you belong wherever you are, you belong there. You deserve to be there. But there's just, I think that's just an issue a lot of us grapple with. It's just understanding you have a unique contribution to make, even if you're not a PhD, even if you weren't a cop, even if you weren't a doctor in a former life, like name things, you still belong and deserve whatever it is that you've earned. So I just have to harp on that because I think we've all had that feeling. Yeah. You mentioned being a doctor. One of my classmates was a doctor and, you know, studying at Stanford, but he he also worked night shifts in the ER while he was a law student just to, you know, because law school wasn't challenging yes. enough. Yes. Well, <laughs> and you're making a little bit of money. Yeah. <laughs> so I joined Foley. I think that's okay for me to share this story, but I joined Foley from Baker McKenzie and they have a fantastic global director of diversity and inclusion there, Anna Brown. She went to Howard for law school and she'd been a nurse in a former life and she continued moonlighting as a nurse while in law school, partly because it helps pay the bills. And if this lawyer thing doesn't work out, I still got my you know, ability to be a nurse. But yeah, there's people with those types of stories. And then overall, how was adjusting to just how law school is taught, how you study for law school? Did that happen pretty easily? Or did you feel like you had to kind of recalibrate as compared to undergrad? Well, law school is hard. I mean, there's no getting around that. It's, it's hard and it's a lot of pressure because everything is dependent on the one test at the end. You know, it was an adjustment. My first year, especially my first semester, was difficult. When you're looking at, you're reading cases and they have the asterisks that have the page numbers. I didn't even understand what that was. <laughs> I remember having to ask, like, one of my professors, you know, why are there just numbers embedded in these cases? That's a really good question. I don't even know if I, I'd be like, mm, they don't, I'm just going to keep going. I'll just pretend this isn't there. <laughs> There's so much Latin that's involved in legal studies. So it was difficult, but I adjusted. And I think having a really strong support network with my friends, my law school crew really helped. Well, and I also like that you asked that you, because you're like, I don't know, maybe everyone in here knows what these mean, but I don't. So I'm going to ask. I think that's great. And also, I like asking the lawyers at Foley, particularly the partners at Foley, how they found law school, because I just know there's a lot of people grappling with that right now. And I think it helps to hear somebody who's now, you know, in a place where you, you know, like to be say, yes, that was hard, but I got through it. Yeah. <laughs> so. And I think it was partly my Wellesley training. So Wellesley's an all women's college and they very much encourage women to speak up and to, you know, take up space in the room. Yes. As it happened, my section, my first year of law school had three Wellesley women, me and two others. And 
we were the only women who spoke up voluntarily in class. And I don't know if it was just our personalities or if it was the Wellesley training, but it was a notable difference and it didn't change the entire first year. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's probably both, but also back to what you were saying, this is for everyone who's in law school. It costs a lot to be there. Either you're paying it for it, somebody's paying for it. Please take advantage of it with your professors, with engaging. I know we all have that fear of being judged and there's the, you know, you don't want to be the law school gunner. I get that. But you also want to make sure you're maximizing your time there and you truly are are learning. This is not a time to to shrink and become smaller. Right. At least take up the space that you physically deserve as a human. If you don't want to get way bigger, but still take up what you should take up. It's a really good point. Okay. So I will fast forward a little bit through law school. So what were your thoughts while you're in law school about practice areas and where you're going to work and law firms and how did all of that work for you? I did not have a clear idea of what I wanted to do after law school. I applied for summer associate positions during my first year, just because that was sort of what everybody did. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll try it and see what happens. And I ended up working at Foley, the 1L, and I just really loved it, actually. I tried a bunch of different practice areas when I was a summer associate. I thought that with my economics background, doing something in antitrust could be a good fit because I kind of understood some of the concepts. But that didn't really excite me when I did projects in that. I did a couple of trademark projects and I loved them. I loved the people who I worked with. At the time, it was Peter Mack and Norm Rich is still a partner in the DC office. And I just thought it was so exciting and relatable. So when I went back for my 2L year, I started taking more IP heavy classes. I asked Peter what would be good classes for me to take if I wanted to do this full time and, and, you know, told me that we do a lot of international work, so international IP and various other ones. And so that's what I went and took. A couple of things. Okay, one, you knew you wanted to get back to DC, even though you're in at Stanford in California. So you mentioned you're in Foley's DC office. Yeah. Also, I have to say, I think I missed you by a summer, Katie, because I summered at Foley my 1L summer, which was 2006. So it sounds like you're at the firm, I'd, I'd imagine it's 2004, 2005, and then you graduated from law school in 2006. Yeah. So I missed you just by one summer. <laughs> um, but so that's wonderful. You're exposed to various practice areas. You find that trademark advertising copyright, right. and you're able to go back to law school and take some classes to further learn about things that'll be relevant to that. You graduate, you take the bar, you come back to Foley as a first year, and you join the trademark group, or how did that work? I actually... I did clerkship straight out of Oh, law you clerked. I forgot about that. Yeah. Tell me about that. So I applied to do clerkships. My, I guess it would have been my 3L year. And by the way, why? I know it's kind of obvious a lot of lawyers, but, but why? Why did you want to clerk? Well, I thought it would be really good training. You know, it's a prestige thing, right? It helps to bolster your resume. So I thought, well, you know, it fully doesn't work out. Let me get that. Let me go ahead and get the clerkship. (laughs) Let me get the clerkship. But it was really more about the training than anything else. You know, I still wasn't sure if I was going to do litigation or counseling. And I got at least two offers. One was in Texas, near where my extended family lives. And that was a two year clerkship. And one was in Maryland, near where my parents live. And that was a one-year clerkship. And I remember I called Norm and I was talking to him about it, about whether the spot would still be open for me if I took the two-year clerkship versus the one year. And he said that, you know, they couldn't forecast that far in advance, which now as a partner, I completely understand. (laughs) 
<laughs> so nice. you really you just can't you don't know but they don't want to make any promises they're like we're not sure it's not it's a while away yeah yeah because at that point it would have been three years away right yes. i was still in law school so i decided to take the one-year clerkship i clerked with in the federal district court in greenbelt my judge is one of the smartest people i've ever met she's just extremely sharp gets straight to the point is very tough you know in terms of like the work product if i made a mistake she'd let me know <laughs> but i think it was excellent training it really helped hone my writing skills and my legal analysis and by the way what were you doing as a clerk so i thought this was very generous of her she didn't let us do any of the criminal work because she thought it would be too much of a emotional burden for us to have to you know work on death penalty cases and have that hanging on our conscience. So we did only the civil matters, you know, read the case file, do research on the issues and then prepare draft opinions. And then we would, I would work with her to flesh out the, the ideas and to finalize the opinion. So I never clerked, but I've, and you know, obviously I know a lot of people who have, but I do think this idea of drafting an opinion for a federal judge sounds a little daunting. And so I, it's like, I'm, I'm sure it's great training, but like you said, she let you know when something wasn't right. And that's wonderful, but I can see people be like, oh my gosh, hope I didn't mess this up too bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's sort of like when you're an associate and you're drafting something for a partner, like it's never going to go out the door until it's right. That's <laughs> so. right. That's exactly right. Well, and I also think at a recurring theme on this show, but is that I don't want to necessarily say it's failure, but embracing feedback, knowing that you're learning, knowing that you're going to, to either mess up or be told a better way to do it. And that's how you learn to be a lawyer. So it starts early and same dynamic in a clerkship. So that makes a lot of sense. So after you finish the clerkship, I'm assuming at this point, you're essentially promised back to Foley in DC or how did that work? Yeah. So I had an offer and the offer stayed open until I was able to join in September 2007. Okay. Well, and also I like what you mentioned about if you'd done the two-year clerkship and you're thinking about this, you're like three, all you were law school, so it's three years away. Thanks for law students to understand. We're also a business as a law firm and it's very hard to project hiring needs out. Yeah. You know, we already do it close to two years when we're doing OCI, which is hard enough. And so I think sometimes students get caught up in things and don't realize certain things are just like business decisions that it really has nothing to do with you personally. It's just these are the offices where we have capacity. These are the practice groups. And I think law students don't always think about that. So I'm just I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. All right. So you finally started at Foley, taking over 25 minutes to get you here. So either either listeners love it or they're super annoyed at me. But <laughs> what was your practice group? Did you join in trademark or how did that work? Yep, I joined in trademark. At that point, Peter Mack, who I had worked principally worked with as a summer associate, had retired. So I was working with Norm Rich, who has been just an amazing mentor my entire career. And there was another associate at the time. So it was Norm, a mid-level associate and me in the DC office. And then we had these two amazing paralegals who are still here, Maria Fry and Patrice Bowers. And, you know, Norm, Patrice, Maria and I have been working together for like 15 years now, 14 years. And we're very close. You know, they've known me when I was pregnant and had a son and, you know, seen him as a baby. So it's been a very close, close-knit group. 
That's fantastic. So I wanted to ask a couple of things. I'm trying to think the order I want to do this in. So I've had a few other members of the trademark copyright advertising practice on the podcast. I've had Mark Deliberti, and I've had um, Jeff Green, and then also Laura Ganoza is a secondary, but still does a lot of IP-related work, even though she's also general commercial lit. I would love to hear initially, and this is also, I swear, listeners, we will catch up to the present, but when you look back at the early years of learning your practice area, what that was like, how you learned, because in many ways, I think of trademark copyright advertising as three things put together. And I think it can present challenges as a practice that are maybe a little different from others. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on what it was like as you were learning the practice area. Yeah, so it is three different substantive areas of law, but also within it, we do a lot of different types of things. So my practice is counseling, prosecution, which means trying to get them registered, trying to get trademarks registered, and enforcement. So what that means, it can mean a client says, I'm going to launch this new product, and I want to call it this, is that available? And so trying to figure out, well, how do we figure out if it's available? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to the person who doesn't, thought initiated. I will Google that for you. No, I'm just kidding. That is not what we're going to do. It's not what we do. (laughs) So just going down from like not knowing anything about it, right? Figuring out how do we, you know, where do we look to find out if it's available? How do you assess the risks? How do you communicate those risks to the client in a way that they can actually use that to make a business decision? And the way I learned is working closely, primarily with Norm for the first several years. And then later on, actually with Jeff, who you said was on the the podcast. Those are the people I I work with primarily as a junior and and mid-level associate. So, you know, seeing them mark up what I gave them or hearing them talk to the client and what factors they honed in on in the conversations that all helped me to learn and develop, right? And then the other part would be the registration aspect. So I do a lot of work in the US and abroad. So, you know, learning how to work with the examiners at the US Patent and Trademark Office, what pressures are they under, you know, getting to know some of them on a more personal level and being able to work with them, but also having to learn the legal practices of other countries. You know, we do a lot of work in Europe, the UK, Japan, China, Australia, various other jurisdictions, and getting to know what works, you know, in Australia may not work in the UK, and finding local counsel that you can trust and you can rely on to tell you, oh, well, that's not the way we should go with this. So it's, you know, just trying to learn there's a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's just for the trademark side. That's not even getting into the copyright and advertising. We haven't unpacked the other two practices. No, but I'm sure aspects of what you just said are applicable, obviously different in terms of, you know, specifically what you're doing. But also to make it really clear, at this point, you are looking back on essentially about, I don't know, 15 years or so of legal practice. And there's like I said, there's just some themes this show that hits over and over over again. Cause I know most people listen to every episode. But it is understanding, and to sound so cliche, but this is a marathon. Legal practice is a marathon. So when you say all those things, it's not like you did all that in your first six months, you know, at the firm. Like this is 
years of working with people, learning from them, taking their feedback. But I just, I really like harping on that because I think, I think it's hard to be a lawyer at first, particularly because you're taking people who are very high achieving, very good at learning and doing things, you know, quickly and getting that gold star. And then you're like, okay, Katie, you know, who's now, I don't know, 25, 26 post clerkship, it's going to take you at least, let's name it, three to five years to really even understand what's going on, <laughs> right? Like that's, is tough for people to hear, but I think the more you hear it, you, it normalizes it. You can kind of calm down, be where you are, learn. And I also really like what you said about learning the pressures that other people are under. Yeah. That's a really big thing that, that applies in so many different contexts, when particularly as an associate. It really does because this realization came to me much later, but being a, an attorney is, is a very much of a giving profession. So the more you can understand what pressures your clients are under or the partners that you're working for are under, the better you'll do, right? So if if you fully internalize, okay, my client is in-house counsel and they need to be able to sell this idea to their internal business, what tools can I give them to help them do that? make sure I get it to them on time. So they're not having to apologize to their internal clients that they haven't, you know, they don't have the answer yet. So those sorts of ideas. And then for the, you know, an associate to a partner say, look, the partner's juggling twice as many cases as I am. And they need to be able to look at this quickly, make sure it's right and get it out the door. So having that understanding... (laughs) I'm just nodding so much. That's like one of those like keys, I think, to the universe, particularly when you're a young lawyer, is that empathy and understanding that the other person's not just sitting there trying to figure out ways to make your life difficult. Like they're beholden to a lot of other people. They need to be able to rely on your work. And that's also why for associates, a transition happens where instead of being asked to do things, you start anticipating. And that's when you get really valuable because yes. Katie, for example, she does want to ask you to do whatever sort of research, but she's really busy. So when you get to the point that you could say, Katie, I know we're working on X. I've already started looking at Y. Let me know if I shouldn't. You're going to be like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. I know. Like last night I got an email from an associate. I was still on my computer at 10 PM and she's like, okay, I saw this draft agreement come in. I'll put together some ideas in a mark it up and a note to send to the client. I was like, Perfect. Thank you. Perfect. I know, you have to be like, I love you. Thank you. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, and that's also why it's really hard. You know, maybe this is being too candid, but when I was practicing, I always thought it felt a little bit perverse. Like I was trying to do stuff for people who already knew what they were doing, yet they were asking me to do it. And I was like, maybe you should do it. And I should just watch you do this because, but the bottom line is that the work has to get done. We're training people. We're figuring this out. But the sooner you're able to, and asking good questions, by the way, helps you get to the point where you can anticipate and realizing people are busy and they're not just sitting there only thinking about you. So if, you know, they didn't ask the thing the exact perfect way or right, like, just know that it's not about you just kind of keep it moving. (laughs) So yes. But okay, I want to move forward and talk two things. One about you being a partner at Foley. So I'm curious as to one, what's kept you at Foley, but also reflections on that transition into partnership. And like I said, we're recording this during Hispanic Heritage Month, also understanding there are not a lot of Latina partners in large law firms, you know, anything like about that experience as well. But yeah, why did you stay at Foley? How have we kept you? And what was that transition like? Sorry, it's like eight questions put together. So just say things about it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say that the main reason that I stayed at Foley is because of the people. And that sounds really cliche, but it's true. 
I think Foley is a good law firm filled with good people. So many of my now partners have invested a great deal in my development and have advocated for me and tried to further my career and expose me to, you know, new clients, new opportunities. And I don't know that I would have gotten that sort of like investment at a different law firm. So I think that's really been key. And like I mentioned here in the DC office in particular, we have a very close knit group. Norm, who I've mentioned multiple times, came to my wedding. One of the paralegals, Maria, she like knitted a baby blanket for my baby when he was born. Like these are like, you know, these are my friends now. I wouldn't want to practice without them. So that's been a big factor. Plus, in addition to that, I really like the clients we work with. By and large, our clients are also really good people. They are, you know, people I enjoy talking to on the phone. They ask interesting questions and I know their industries and I know their businesses now and I don't want to give that up. So that's why I stayed. Well, and you said this keyword people in different contexts, you know, the people at Foley, but also clients or people. And the thing is for anyone who's listened to the show more than once, this comes up a lot. It just does. And it's hard to capture what exactly that means to say that, I, you know, it's the culture, it's the people, but it's very much true about the firm. And by the way, listeners, I'm not giving Katie like a script, right? I wasn't like at the, you know, 38 minute mark, please say the words people. She's free to say whatever she wants. But I think that's absolutely true about something that differentiates the firm. But also I think because Foley has that culture and that value around people and, you know, also the fact that you can be a full person at the firm, you know, you're likely well aware of other things going on in you know, your colleagues' lives. You know, it's not like, you know, pretend like you don't have kids or pretend like you're not doing these other things. I think everybody kind of shows up as their full self in a, in a lot of ways. But also the firm wants, we humanize our clients too, understanding that those are people that we are helping and not just some big, like, abstract Fortune 500 entity. Right? right. And I think that actually comes from the top down because one of our, I don't know the right word, mission statements or the firm directives is client service, right? And that is absolutely key and integral to everything that we do. And part of that is recognizing the humanity of the people that you're writing to and talking to and, you know, how can we make their lives easier? Yes. And that's what we try to do. I don't know how to say this properly, but everybody in the firm has that as their principal goal. So from my assistant, the paralegals, the office services staff, everybody is oriented towards trying to do the best work we can for our clients. Yep, absolutely. And what I've noticed a theme on this show is most of our attorneys characterize themselves as I help clients with X. Right. It's not just that I'm a trademark. It's I help clients solve X sort of issues. And I like to think that's obvious as a professional services firm. But I do think as you hear people from other places talk, you'll notice there's actually some differences in the messaging and how it's kind of abstract it can get. And also, Katie, in our last, I don't know, five to seven minutes together, we'll see how quickly we wrap this up. I also want to get you to talk about the experience of being a woman of color and a large law firm? Like, has that been something that's all at all you felt like has impacted the lens within which you've practiced? Because I know there's likely going to be some law students in particular listening who were like, all right, you know, how do I know Black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, that this place, a, a certain firm is going to be good for me? So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that. So it's interesting. I think 
that being a woman of color has obviously impacted me, but it's been more of an internal impact than an external one. Interesting. So I don't think that I've been treated any differently by my colleagues or by my clients. Like I think everybody's given me the same benefit of the doubt that they would to anybody else. But I think that certain of my own characteristics and self-doubt have I've had to overcome. So I know one of the things growing up in a Chicano household is you respect your elders, right? It's very important. You don't talk back. You go along with what the people who are older than you and know better say. <laughs> so that is a habit I had to break when I was at the law firm because it took me years to realize that the partners I was working for wanted me to speak my mind and hear what I had to say if I disagreed with them or if they were overlooking something. You know, I think it was my cultural upbringing not to talk back. And I got that feedback, you know, that I was being too deferential. And so I had to push through that and it was uncomfortable, you know, and also as a woman, you know, women are expected to be nice all the time. And so I would have trouble sometimes speaking to opposing counsel and say, you know, you know, don't be disrespectful, always be professional, but not having worrying about whether they liked me as a person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like eventually I had to wrap my head around that this isn't about yeah. me <laughs> at all. Yeah. This is about what I can do for my clients. And if this other party is not acting in a reasonable manner, you know, I need to tell them that. Yeah. And it's okay for you to be firm. It's okay that. for me to be firm. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that some of those like sort of ingrained examples. Yeah were difficult. Well, it's tough because this is where we could just have another, we could have like a three hour conversation (laughs) about all of this, but there's so many other dynamics at play that, and this can be for anyone, but obviously right now I am speaking to that experience of, you know, being a woman of color or underrepresented minority. There's societal things, there's cultural things that you're bringing into the environment and whether or not they should be valued or not, it's sort of like there's this level of self-awareness that you end up having to deploy. And I, by the way, that I hope everyone, regardless of background deploys as to what tendencies you have that may or may not be useful. And the great thing is, you know, through just the process at a large law firm, you'll get feedback that will help with that. But I know for me, for example, now that I do this podcast, a lot of other things, I see myself in video and I hear myself on audio a lot more than probably the average person. But I've learned there's times where I think I sound incredibly firm. And if I listen to it, I'm like, you don't sound, you don't sound firm at all, actually. (laughs) But that self-awareness, that learning, there is cultural stuff that happens, particularly with other communities. A book I'll recommend for listeners, particularly for women of color, is called What Works for Women at Work by Joan Williams. And she actually has a chapter on women of color in professional services firms and looks at law firms in particular. And not just like, you know, what do we have to work on, but also some of the biases you may encounter. So, you know, Katie, it's great that you didn't encounter those, but you know, you still may and having to wear that. So I don't know. I just really appreciate you sharing that. And I'll refrain from talking for the next 90 minutes (laughs) (laughs) about it. But I will add, there is something also, I think, to not seeing a lot of people who look like you. Yeah, for sure. So I remember very clearly when I was still a senior counsel going to my first partner dinner and, you know, they invited senior counsel to go and walking in and just being in a room full of white men (laughs) and thinking, all right, which one of these doesn't belong, (laughs) right? But I knew a lot of them 
because we've been working together for so many years and I, mm-hmm. and it was fine. It was comfortable. And of course everybody was kind and, and welcoming to me. So it was just my own internal sense of like, Oh, this is not, nobody here looks like me. Yeah. And it's something that you end up in the environments that we all end up having to navigate for those of us with that experience. And also we won't have time to unpack this. There's also age dynamics. So there can be, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, age. But I know for me starting practicing so young, what you said about being deferential when you're also maybe 26 and you're working with someone who's got 20 plus years on you, it's even harder to kind of push through that and be like, no, no, I think this is wrong. Like, (laughs) here's why. And so I think we say this with a great amount of empathy to anybody who's dealing with that, but also recognizing there is this level of kind of stepping into your own and having confidence. And it can be harder. It would be remiss to say it's not harder when you're operating in a place where you're, you know, in the minority. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So as we do officially wind down, I want to ask you my second to last question, and you've already given a lot of great advice. Actually, I'll, I'll do another compound question because that's what I keep doing with you, Katie, is one, is there anything else you've wanted to mention that you haven't had a chance to? But beyond that, big picture advice to somebody navigating a legal career, whether they're in law school, maybe they're still an associate, what kind of general advice do you have for them? So to your first question about anything else that I wanted to mention, I think something that's important to understand is that all types of people can thrive in a law firm environment. You know, I tend to be a fairly quiet person. You don't have to be somebody who goes to a happy hour and collects 20 business cards in order to build business. You can do it by doing excellent work and creating personal relationships with your clients and with your colleagues. And that is a viable path to becoming a partner. That's what I've done. And I have a lot of work. (laughs) So, So for all the other introverts out there, you can still do this. There's a place for you here. There's a place for you here. (laughs) And then the other one would be sort of what advice would I give to a law student or a junior associate that your guiding principle should be what's in the best interest of the client. So that can impact, you know, writing in a way that is clear and gives them the information they need to make a business decision. It can mean turning things around promptly because you know that they need it by X date. If that is sort of always in your frame of reference, then you're going to be fine. And also just the general golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. Absolutely. And I have to give an example, and maybe you can follow up on this about with the client, for example, how you communicate. We've all gotten emails from law students where they wanted something from you and they it was like 800 words. I'm a law student at X. And you're like, I can't read this right now. <laughs> and whatever you want, you could have said to me in three sentences. I think it's similar when you're interacting with clients. If they want an answer from you, I'm sure you're giving them the answer within the first sentence or two. And if you have a bunch of other stuff to say about the risks and things to consider, that's probably towards the bottom. But like that's that caring and empathy in action. So just yeah. I just assume everybody's reading it on their cell phones and so that they want to just see it like in the preview. <laughs> <laughs> I just threw my arms up in the air because that's the most brilliant thing to assume. Because it's true. That is amazing advice. And of course my final final question, if any of the listeners have questions or comments or want to reach out to you, can they feel free to find your email address on Foley's website and send you an email? Yes, of course. Oh, perfect. Well, Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. 
I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 